to say some obvious things. Uh, for those of y'all that, that know me and have been aware, thanks uh, for the prayers, uh, for checking in, uh, all the stuff having to do with health. But I will also say with that, that uh, back there at the sound booth, you're probably going to have to have your finger over the mute button because, as y'all can imagine, with a weakened immune system as I am uh, going through things, I've had the pleasure of having a cold or remnants of it for about two months now. Um, so every now and then, I will probably have to cough. Um, I got cough drops in. I've taken some Delsum. I'm doing everything I possibly can to uh, not make this annoying for y'all, but hold on. <coughs> All right. Um, hopefully, that'll be the only one, but probably not. All righty. So uh, what are y'all's biggest fears? And let's just jump into the deep end. You know, like when you, you think about the things that bother you, uh, for me, a definite one is a snake. It turns my stomach, like I shut down, I don't know what to do, I don't know why they're here. Like, is it flying, heights, my body responds poorly. If I get up too high, then all of a sudden I'm like starting to do this. Even, I'm probably standing still, but my body feels like, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm just gonna fall over. Spiders, rejection, uh, failure, like we've all got these things. Well, <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld, he, he once said, a recent survey stated that the average person's greatest fear is having to give a speech in public. Somehow, this ranked even higher than death. So you're telling me that at a funeral, most people would rather be the guy in the coffin than have to stand up and give the eulogy. Look, we all know uh, that death is coming, but none of us know what to expect. You know, and we have these questions. And I would guess that because we have these questions, because we don't know to, what to expect, generally we fall into one of two categories of how we respond to this. We either ignore it because it's too far away and almost, we almost kind of like a little kid, you know, pull the blanket up. If I can't see you, you can't see me, so we don't have to talk about this kind of thing. So we respond in that way or like we give over into all kinds of like worry and having to focus on it and, and all of this this almost uh, obsessive behavior with it. What you believe about death will absolutely determine the way that you live. And what we need to see in this is that life is about way more than the dashes between the years on our tombstone. Life is much bigger than that. And when we understand that, I believe that helps us to be able to actually live it to the fullest. If you couldn't tell by now, uh, I'm, I'm coming in as a guest speaker to talk to you about the very cheery topic of death. So, uh, people have an awareness of beyond, something bigger, something more, but we don't, nobody's been there. You know what I mean? Like, nobody's been there and able to come back, so we don't, we don't have, none of us, Obviously, we believe with Jesus or else we wouldn't be here. But you know what I'm saying? Like, none of us have been there and able to come back and able to really tell you exactly what it is. We might have some thoughts of it, but none of us truly know what goes on after. And we have all of these questions that may lead to some frustration, may lead to some dissatisfaction. For some people, it, going down this rabbit hole gives them purpose and hope and all of that. What we believe about death will determine how we live. Today, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to spend most of our time in John chapter 11. 
So go ahead and, uh, and go there. We're going to be looking at an encounter that Jesus has with one of his friends, actually a few of his friends, but he's friends with a guy named Lazarus uh, and his sisters, Mary and Martha. Um, and we're going to see how Jesus interacts with the death of his friend and the aftermath that's left for his family and all that they have to deal with uh, as a result. So, um, Jesus gets the news, Mary and Martha send him news that Lazarus is really sick. And so, picking up, sorry if you want to hit that mute button again. <coughs> okay, uh, picking up, or we're going to start in verse 5. They've, they've sent word to, to Jesus about Lazarus' death. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Have you ever thought about uh, some of the, um, the lullabies that we sing to our kids? Like, rockabye baby, on a treetop, when the wind blows, the cradle will rock. Oh, that's so great, so lovely. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall, down will come baby, cradle and all. It's kind of a horror show. Are we singing to our children? Yeah, and that's just one. I mean, there's, we sing some crazy mess, and we just call them lullabies. There's this lullaby effect where we have heard it our whole lives. We don't really think about the craziness of what it is that we're saying or hearing. And I think that that same thing happens to us in the Bible. There are things that we read over so quick that maybe at one point in time, maybe we did ask a question, but we thought, am I allowed to ask that question? Like, are we allowed to do that in church? Or it's happened so many times you're just like, oh, I don't even, don't even recognize it. So I'm going to read those three verses again, and I want to see if you see what I see. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Huh? What? Like, okay. So he loved them. He finds out that Lazarus is sick. And he says, because of my love, I'm just going to hang out here for a little while longer. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. So we're clear on this. They get the word to Jesus because he's sick. Why? Because they know that Jesus could do something about this sickness. And when Jesus gets the word, what does he do? Because he loves them, he stays where he is and doesn't go to them. Okay, let's pick up in verse 11. <coughs> so Jesus told them, <coughs> sorry, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let's go to him. There it is again. For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. It's almost as if Jesus doesn't understand how serious death is. You know what I'm saying? Like if he really understood what was going on, maybe he'd have a little bit of urgency about himself. Throughout the Bible, 
we see our writers using this, this euphemism of, of sleep for death. Um, and Jesus is doing just that. Lazarus is asleep. And as far as he's concerned, that's totally fine. Because just as, you know, we go to sleep at night or we take naps, great gift from the Lord, you know, like we wake up and there's more life to be lived. And for Jesus, this isn't, this isn't it. He's just taking a nap. But from our experience, death is final. None of us have any experience to speak to to the contrary, but what if all of our experience is wrong? Because what you believe about death will absolutely determine what you do with your life. Let me ask you something. When does eternal life begin? Just, just ponder that for a second. If, if that's the question, like, you know, you get up to heaven, and God's like, all right, I'll let you in. He's got one question for you. You're getting this right is determined whether you get in or not. Like, what's your, like what's your answer? What's your go-to? I think a lot of us would say, well, eternal life, it begins after you die. But again, I think this is a little bit of a lullaby effect and not really reading and, and slowing down with what the Bible says. Eternal life began for me at the moment that life began for me. Eternal life isn't something to come. It's something that simply is. When you die, your soul is separated from the body, but you're still very much alive. Like, okay, somebody else is having to make the arrangements, you know, then there's somebody who's making the, the potato salad for the visitation and all of that sort of stuff. But you are still very much alive during that whole time. You are no more alive now than you will be then or vice versa. The body goes to sleep, but the, the soul lives on. Death is simply another step along the journey that we take. Back to our story, picking up in verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, this is very significant. This to us, we might just say, okay, that's just a, a note. It's very significant when you understand thoughts that the Jews had at the time. Uh, if you were to look in the Talmud, the Talmud is made up of uh, civil um, and uh, ceremonial law, as well as some, some legends, some commentary. And, uh, and this, is, this is what it says. The soul protests the body's death. It lingers near the body for three days, hoping that it will return to life. In another part, it says, uh, after three days, the soul returns to God to await the time of the resurrection. So for everybody who would have been watching Jesus, they would have said, oh yeah, the soul is going to linger around the body for three days, hoping to be restored. How long has Lazarus been dead? For four days. Coincidence? No, Jesus is wanting to be able to teach them something. We're starting to get a glimpse into the fact that because Jesus loved Mary and Martha, he stayed where he was for two days. He wanted to make sure that they got this. He wanted to make sure that they understood. Picking up in verse 20, <clears throat> When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. That's, that's great faith right there just to start off with, but I can keep going a little bit further. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. You believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Do you believe this? Like, do you really believe this? Because there's a lot of things that we say that we believe until we're really confronted with it, you know? What you believe about death will determine how you live. Verse 28, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said. He's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. I'm going to skip down to verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along uh, with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then we get the shortest verse in the English Bible. Jesus wept. Verse 36, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Mary and Martha have the same response. They're upset. They, and I, I've tried to read it with, you know, because voice inflection is so important in communication. We don't get that. So I've tried to read it as both the, like, are they saying it like they're mad? Man, if you would have been here, you know, is it that or is it, if you would have been here? Like, is, is, it, is it almost said like a question? Like, why, like why weren't you here? I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, these, these are things I hope we have home movies in heaven, you know what I mean, to kind of bring some of these stories to light a little bit more. But either way, they're questioning why Jesus wasn't there. Well, let's be honest. Uh, wouldn't you? Let's be a little bit more honest. Haven't you? I know that I have at times. At the heart of that question, though, is an acknowledgement that we believe that Jesus can do something about this. He has the ability. There is actually a bit of faith in that kind of question, in that kind of statement. Something that we need to understand with this, and we, we can't let this go by, is death is not natural. This is why it bothers us so much. And, and with that, I believe that it also seriously bothers Jesus. Let Let's just slow down again for a second. If you notice, there's a whole lot of slowing down as we're going through this passage. Jesus wept. A great one for kids at, at camp to memorize. You know, it's two words. You can get your points for your team and all that sort of stuff. Um, what does weeping imply? What do you picture? Huh? Crying? But are we talking like a tear? Like, could y'all imagine, I mean... How ugly was this cry? Because weeping just usually isn't like shedding a few tears. Like, did Jesus have like an ugly, snot coming out the nose, cry, weep? I know that, you know, he's the son of God, and so we have to be reverent, and we can't imagine him that way. But he was also human, and he was in the midst of being around friends who had just lost a brother. And he's seeing the result of this broken world right in front of him. You know, have you, it, it, here's, here's the other kind of crazy thing that goes along with this. Jesus knew what was getting ready to happen. Like, have you ever thought about why he cried? Because I don't know about y'all, 
if it's me, and maybe just because, like, I like to surprise people or, like, play jokes or different things like that, but, like, if I know I'm getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, like, I might have a little smirk. I might, like, nudge one of the disciples and be like, just wait for this. This is going to be great. You know what I mean? Like, because I know the joy that is getting ready to happen. Why is he crying? Does it make any sense? Have you ever, I don't know, you look at the news, you read a story, somebody tells you something, and there's something that happens, and man, your, your heart just sinks. You know, there's a tsunami, an earthquake, there's a picture of a kid, and you find out that, man, that kid, even if he had a house to go home to, he doesn't have a family to go home to after what just happened. Does that stuff bother you? And I don't just mean like, oh, that's sad. But I mean, does it bother you? Here, here's what I sometimes find amazing. Uh, God is love. You know, there's an equal sign in there. We're made in his image. We get love because we are made in the image of a God who loves. And yet sometimes it's like we think that we understand love better than he does. You know, like these things bother us, but not him. As if God isn't in heaven weeping when he sees the result of a fallen world and all the stuff that it brings and all the things that his children have to deal with. I don't know about you, but man, as I, as I read about God throughout the whole Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and Jesus put in, put in, he's the image of the invisible God. He has put skin on all the questions that we have. I see a God who is frustrated, angry, and just wants this stuff to change. This is not the world that he originally created. It's a world that he's using. It's a world that still very much has a lot of beauty and still has his, his fingerprints all over the place and things that we can definitely enjoy. But it's a fallen world. And it's a world that Jesus gives us a glimpse that as he walks through, he occasionally heals, restores, gives us a glimpse of what is to come when these things will be made right. When Jesus was talking with Martha outside of the village, uh, he said this. We're going to pick back up in verse 25. And the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though they die, whoever... And who, uh, oh, hold on. Let me start that again. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever uh, lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? They make their way to the tomb. Jesus tells them to move the stone. And Martha reminds him that Lazarus has been dead for four days and it's going to be bumpy. And Jesus says, that's all right, let's do this. And so Jesus prays a, an audible prayer so everybody there can know what's going on. And then in verse 43, it says this, that Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet uh, wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take the grave clothes off and let him go. Death is described as an enemy to us in the Bible. Um, but it's an enemy that has been defeated. It's one that we don't have to fear. Yet sometimes, interestingly enough, we cheer for in some of our movies. I'll just leave that little nugget there for you to deal with later on. Somebody did it for me and ruined all kinds of movies for me. So, um, death has disrupted the normal state of things in this world and it's made everything upside down but it won't last 
death's reign is being overthrown and dethroned. In Revelation 1, verse 18, Jesus said, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Paul reminds the, the Colossians that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. And that, that might seem like weird language to us until we, we realize some things. And this is where, uh, I'm not going to go on a big old rant, um, but we have, we have a holiday that we call Easter. And personally, I'm not a fan of that name. Um, I'm not going to get into all the conspiracy theories that people have for it. But the day that Jesus was resurrected for the Jews was not called Easter. It was called the Feast of First Fruits. And on that day, the Jews would bring the first fruits from their harvest, and they would offer them to God. And this offering was not only a thank you, but it was a, a preparing and a trusting that God would give more. That that wouldn't be it. Lots of times on Easter, we celebrate one resurrection. I think if we understood that there was a reason why Jesus was specifically resurrected on the day of the Feast of First Fruits, we wouldn't celebrate one resurrection. We would celebrate the rest of the harvest that's to come. You get what I'm saying? He's the firstborn from among the dead. That means that there are more to follow. That means that when the heart stops pumping blood, the lungs stop filling up with air, you're not dead, at some point in time, you're going to be resurrected. There are just steps along the journey. We see this in regular old life. Just in life here, as we see it, kids start off, man, taking up a whole lot of time. You know, they can't do anything. They're kind of kind of a waste, you know, and they're not a waste, but like they just take up so much of your time. And then they get to where, you know, they can crawl or roll around or my kids for some reason crawled backwards. Um, they didn't really get the memo of what they were supposed to be doing. You know, and then they, they kind of wobble around and fall down and then they can get to where they can run. So we've got all these different stages. It's just, it's just a stage that we go through. Hope is found in Jesus. There's nothing in death for us to fear. It's just another step along the journey. The enemy might use it to scare us, but it has been defeated. Might want to hit mute real quick. <coughs> that didn't give you enough warning. All right. Um, y'all have been on, been with me on, on a journey, and I, I will not go through all the details so as not to bore y'all. Um, but uh, y'all know, about nine years ago, uh, I consulted with Dr. Google, and uh, he assured me that I had pneumonia. So I went to see my doctor to get, because Dr. Google can't prescribe me medicine. So I had to go see my doctor and tell him uh, what I had. And uh, he treated me for pneumonia for about four days before he finally sent me to the ER to get a CT scan uh, where they noticed uh, a mass behind my sternum. And uh, then uh, a few days later, November 7th, uh, a guy, uh, Dr. Foster, who, uh, who would eventually become my oncologist, who I'd get to know quite well, came into my room and said, hey, uh, we know what's going on. It's not pneumonia. Uh, you have T-cell uh, acute lymphoblastic lymphoma. Now, um, I'm rather optimistic, or I sometimes say I am blessed with a spiritual gift of ignorance. Um, whichever one you want to say, I can easily go through life and not really think about a whole lot of things. Um, and so I just said, hey, so what are my odds? And uh, he said, 
about 70 to 80% chance that this goes into remission and you never see it again. I ride a motorcycle. I'm good with those odds. Like, that's, that's life. You know what I mean? Like, people die getting in and out of the shower. Like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take this. So, I finished my first round of, of chemo. Uh, I've, I'm able to go home in time for Thanksgiving and get away from the hospital food. And uh, it's, you know, it's close to that time. And our girls at that time are six and eight. So we take them for their annual Santa pictures, which, by the way, they still, they're 15 and 17. Just as long as they're in our house, Santa pictures happen. So uh, we took them to get their, uh, their annual Santa pictures. And any of y'all who have either been through or, or, or been with somebody who's had to go through chemo, you know that uh, it, can, it can wear you out, it can zap you. And so I was like, hey, y'all want to walk around the mall and have fun and play and all that sort of stuff. I'm just going to go to Barnes & Noble. I'm going to sit down. Don't rush. I'm good. I just want to sit, like do whatever you need to do. And so my wife comes up, and uh, they, they've had all their time, and, and she looks at me, and she says, uh, what's wrong with your hand? And so the, uh, my left hand was swollen about twice as thick uh, as, like, my normal size. And um, so I found out, I go to the doctor, asymmetrical swelling is obviously a bad thing, uh, and they said that I had uh, what they describe as like a spider web uh, clot basically going through my chest. And so uh, they give me blood thinners, what you do for a clot. And a few days later, uh, while being on the blood thinners, uh, I pulled a muscle in my, my left hip, and uh, it hurt pretty bad, uh, having a hard time walking, things like that. Well, about four days later, it's my first clinic visit. I go see my oncologist to have the, hear about the tests after my first round of chemo and all those kinds of things. But it's so hard to walk around in the hospital that uh, I get in a wheelchair and I get wheeled around and all that sort of stuff. And I get wheeled into his little room and he's telling me all this stuff. And he's like, hey, great news. You're in remission. And again, I'm ignorant. And so I said, so we done with chemo? <laughs> he's like, oh, no, no. So treatment for T-cell ALL is three years of chemo of some kind. I had been through a month. <laughs> so still had a little time to go. Um, but he was like, oh, no, like, you've, you've got some time. Um, but, uh, but you're in remission. That's, that's great. And I was like, okay. Um, so we're, we're chatting. I have him call Allison because I want him to explain it to her because I'm like, did I actually hear the right thing? Does this happen so quickly? You know, all that sort of stuff. So we're getting ready to leave, and uh, he says, hey, uh, just real quick, why are you in a wheelchair? It's like, ah, I pulled a muscle a few days ago and just having a real hard time walking. And he said, all right, so here's the deal. Great news. You're in remission. Bad news, I'm sending you directly to the ER. I said, for a pulled muscle? He's like, uh, you got internal bleeding. How he knew, I don't know. But he just knew, and he was right. So they take, they take me down there. They get me in. They run my numbers. By the time they end up giving me enough blood to get my numbers up where they, it should be, uh, they estimate that I lost over like four days, like two to three units or liters of blood into my left leg. So you can imagine dropping a two or three liter soda into your leg, the kind of pain that you would have and why I was having a hard time walking around. Again, I am blessed with ignorance. I just pulled a muscle uh, and I would have just kept going with that. This began what was probably uh, the most difficult month of, of my life. Um, about a week or so in, they were ready to send me home and I was quite dubious because I could hardly get out of bed or walk because of my leg and all of that. But they go to deaccess my port. Any of y'all who have ever had a, a you know, central line that can go directly to the heart to help the chemo and all that sort of stuff. As they deaccess it, uh, they find out that I have an infection. 
With this, I learned that an infected line you can't treat. You just have to pull the infected line and then you have to treat the infection. Um, I am no doctor. Um, I picked up something called Pseudomonas. Um, and whenever I tell people with medical experience that, they're like, ooh. So apparently, like, it's a decent bug to have um, to put on the resume of dealt with this. Uh, and the only way that you deal with that particular one is uh, IV antibiotics. And for a small percentage of the population, um, those antibiotics burn the veins when they go in. Um, and so you can't put a new line in until you've dealt with the infection. You got to deal with the infection through IV. I couldn't handle the drugs via IV. And so I just was kind of in limbo because every time they would do like the smallest amount of drip, I was just like, and I don't think I'm that big of a baby, but man, like I just could not, I couldn't handle it. So eventually what they did was they put uh, what's called an IJ, internal jugular. They just ran a line down my neck and uh, somehow that was able to be the thing that then they were able to start putting antibiotics in and, and doing all that sort of stuff. And um, because my oncologist is a jerk, or I mean, he loves me, um, he said, hey, now that you have a line in and you feel like you're about to die, um, it's time to give you some more chemo. Um, and so, because uh, that'll definitely make me feel better. And so he, he starts me on another round of, of treatment. And my body at this point ended up catching up to what was originally supposed to happen, and I ended up catching pneumonia. Um, so, you know, it was just a little late. Um, I ended up waking up one morning, uh, oxygen levels, and I don't know a whole lot about this. I, I know that mine were down to like 84 or something like that. And I was sucking in air as much as I could, but just felt like I couldn't get a breath. And so I was moved to ICU uh, where they were talking about intubating me. Um, thankfully, I dodged that bullet. Didn't have to do that. Um, I had, this is just like tip of the iceberg kind of things within that particular month. I could tell you a whole lot more stories. I'm sure a lot of y'all have, have stories that deal with this sort of stuff. But um, during, during this time, um, uh, it's the closest to death that I ever really felt thought that I would be to the point that uh, I'm not an overly dramatic person. I told you, I'm blessed with ignorance. I love being ignorant and not being dramatic. Um, but I tried to have that talk with my wife, you know, like the, the talk that like nobody ever really wants to have because we just want to pull the sheets up over and, you know, and uh, thankfully my wife, you know, uh, some of y'all know Allison and uh, reasons that I married her. And she was like, look, until somebody in a white coat tells me there's a reason to worry, there's no reason to worry. Suck it up. <laughs> Thank you. I needed that. Uh, I told, she doesn't remember saying that. I've told her that and she's like, oh, it sounds so awful. I was like, you don't realize how badly I needed that at that point in time. Uh, Thank you. That's the reason, little things like that is the reasons why I married her. At the time, I was reading a book uh, by Philip Yancey. He's, he's probably my favorite Christian author. And it was a book uh, called The Bible That Jesus Read. And one of the chapters in that book was, uh, is on the, the uh, book of Job. And if, you, if you're not familiar with Philip Yancey, he's a guy who, who has a lot of questions. And he tends to write his books trying to find answers to his questions, which end up bringing up even more questions. And so then he's like, hey, here's answers that I found, as well as new questions. You're welcome. I don't know what to do with those. And I just, I love the honesty, and that's where I am. I found answers, but man, sometimes those answers bring up even more questions, and I love the realism. But he said he believes that the whole point of the book of Job is to ask this question. 
Is God worth loving if you see no evidence of his love return to you? Because if you're familiar with the book of Job, some bad things happen in Job's life. And the thing is, is Satan is calling into question God's character. Because God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? Hey, God is, God is happy. And Satan essentially says, yeah, but you bought his friendship. I mean, you didn't give him stuff. There's nothing really about you that's worth anything. He wouldn't really like you. If you remove all that stuff, there's no relationship. It's really kind of weird and, and interesting. Is it possible that in this whole situation, God has faith in Job? and has faith in that relationship. And he says, all right, let's start taking some of those things away. Let's start stripping this out. And the whole time that Job maybe feels the most distant from God is the time that God is watching so intently and is rooting for him the whole time. Even at the end, Job gets life restored and things like that to some degree. I mean, he's, he's lost children early on, and he doesn't, he doesn't get those those kids back or things like that. But he never gets a peek behind the curtain. He never, ever is able to get the answers as to why did this stuff happen. Only us. Only do we get to be able to look behind the curtain and see what was going on. Now, how's that for an evangelism strategy? Hey, everybody. I, I want you to come to Jesus. Uh, you'll see no evidence of his love return to you. You'll wonder if he's there and listening or how distant he is. Come follow him. Like that, no, we're all about, here. look, you've got to feel this love from God. But this book, it made me start asking some questions. This went from theoretical to very practical for me. Do I love God because of what I get from him or simply because of who he is? If my faith is built on circumstances, my faith is going to waver from day to day. But if my faith is built on the person and the work of Jesus, that doesn't change. That doesn't move. That's a foundation that stays solid even when I don't understand what's happening right here and right now. As many of you know, uh, I stayed in remission for a number of years, had a number of great years with my kids and all that sort of stuff to not have to think anything about it. Um, uh, but then, you know, last year, uh, a new cancer because of my treatment for T-cell ALL, uh, because of all that poison that they put in to kill that disease, it created another disease, uh, uh, myeloid dysplastic syndrome, MDS, uh, required a stem cell transplant, which is just amazing that we can give people an oil change. You know what I mean? Like, that's just, but when you look at it, and I've asked my daughters, it's a little bit more like magic than it is science. Like, I ask them questions about stuff, and they're like, we don't really know. <laughs> and I'm like, I really want you to know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because if I didn't go to med school and I have these questions, I'm hoping that you had these questions in med school and that somebody somewhere has asked these questions. MDS, uh, it's the only time that I've seen uh, Dr. Foster be really concerned. Um, uh, and the day that he told me, I, I remember looking at him and saying, um, you just look a little more concerned than I think I've seen you over the last eight years. And he was a very good and honest doctor. He said, I'm just going to tell you, there's a lot that can go wrong with this. Like, we've learned some things, but there's just, yeah, I'm concerned. And I was like, okay, well, that stinks, <laughs> you know? 
And here's the thing, and, and I know that I'm not the only one in the room that has had to deal with difficult things in life and all that sort of stuff, but you know, I could sit around and I could, I could dwell on these questions. Even, even eight years ago, nine years ago, will I see my kids graduate from high school? Will I see them graduate from college? If they decide to get married, will I see that? If they're able to have kids, will I see that? Will Allison and I have, you know, retirement years where we can just travel around the country and I can see things that I've never been able to see before? Um, I could spend time worrying about that, but I don't know. For me, this just always seemed like a little bit of a waste of time. Um, because if it's going to happen, well, I want to use the time that I have wisely. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if I've got five days, I don't want to spend four days worrying about the fifth day. <laughs> I want to enjoy those four days. You know what I mean? And if that fifth day isn't going to happen, I've wasted four days worrying about something that's not going to happen. Like, it just, to me, logically doesn't make sense. When death is no longer a concept to have to be feared, it, it changes things. It changes the way that you live. You start to understand that life isn't about the dashes that happen between the years on a tombstone. I finally was able to understand what Paul wrote to the Philippians where he said, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I finally reached the point where I was like, you know what? If the lungs stop filling up with air, isn't that what I'm kind of hoping for at some point? Like, in some ways, I get to beat some people there, <laughs> you know? Um, that's not that bad. But if I'm here, then I can be beneficial for people. Like, I can, I can help my kids through some things. I can, I can do some stuff. For me to live as Christ, to, to be beneficial, to be able to help the people around me. But if I die, it's gain. And let me tell you, as I, as I bring this all to an end, um, going back to... Because Jesus loved them, he stayed where he was two more days. Um, people have asked me before, and I'm not trying to, like, toot a horn or do any of that sort of stuff. This is just, I mean, it's, again, I'm blessed with ignorance, and I'm thankful for that. Um, people have asked me if I'm, if I'm ever angry at God for what, like, the last decade has brought. Um, and I would say that that has never really entered into my mind. Um, trying to make sure. Yeah, that's never entered into my mind. Uh, because, like, none of us are free from living in a fallen world that has problems. But not only that, I can tell you a little bit further on down the timeline, and, I, you know, I reserve the right to change my mind and, you know, be mad at God, I guess, and things like that. I think he's big enough to handle those things. Um, but but I, where I look at now, everything that matters to me is more important to me now. I believe that I'm a better husband uh, because of what I went through. I believe that I'm a better dad because of what I went through. I have a weakened immune system. I'm tired. I want to sleep all the time. And for some dumb reason, I went and spent a week at camp uh, last week because my daughters were going, and it was my oldest daughter's last year at camp. You know what I'm saying? Like, the, And I can tell you that any other time, I would have been like, y'all, I'm tired. I got stuff that I got to do this summer to get ready for students coming in. It takes a lot for me to miss important things now. You know what I'm saying? My desire to be a good campus minister, to pour into my students, is so much higher now. Everything that is of value to me is more valuable now. And I think the most unloving thing that God could have done, knowing where I am, was to not allow me to go through the things that I've gone through. You, you know what I'm saying? Here's what I, I want to leave y'all with after I've talked for probably 87 years. It's my spiritual gift. 
talking way too much. What you believe about death will impact the way that you live. It has everything to do with it. I encourage you to spend some time this week, just sit down with Philippians 1. Just spend some time reading over that, seeing what Paul has to say, and just answering the questions like, what do you believe about death? When does eternal life begin? What do I do with all of this that's in front of me? And how does it impact the way that I live? Um, I, I truly hope and pray that you will be a people not that pulls the sheet up over your eyes and ignores it. And as a result, I believe that with that kind of waste of time, and that you won't be a people who worry and let that consume you, and as a result, waste time, but that you would be a people that says, hey, for me to live as Christ while I'm here, I'm going to make every amount of time that I have worth it, and I'm going to do whatever I can for the people around me. And whenever God says that it's time for this body to take a nap, I trust him. It'll be good. Uh, I get to the finish line a little faster maybe than I was planning on, but I'm there. So, uh, and for those of y'all, maybe I don't know where everybody else is in the room. Uh, If you don't know what any of this stuff means and doesn't make sense, I encourage you to follow Jesus. Uh, He's the only thing that makes this world make sense to me. Let me pray for y'all. Father, thank you for being good. Uh, Thank you for for loving us, um, for for not giving us what we want, uh, but what we need. Um, for being there for us. Uh, I pray that we trust you. Uh, I pray that we live for you. Um, I pray that we are uh, a people that make you proud and happy. Um, And uh, I pray that we partner with you in those same things that bother you, that while we're here, while we're living that dash, that we get about changing this world and making it a better place, the place that you really want it to be, not the place that it is because it's fallen. And it's in the greatest name of all that we pray. Amen.